Hello, and welcome to episode 9 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Please bear with us this week. Um, Carl is is fulfilling some social responsibilities and is unable to um, record from his normal, perfect, soundproof studio at his apartment, so... The sound quality might be a little iffy, but we're doing our best. Hopefully, you can still understand us well, and you won't abandon the podcast forever. For those of you who have been listening every week, we appreciate it. Those of you who want to catch up, you can find us at podcast.tennisabstract.com, or on iTunes, or on Stitcher. And we have a lot to talk about. It is Sunday, May 28th, and Roland Garros is underway. We have our first result of the tournament already, Petra Kvitova, who opened on Chatrier, beat Julia Bosserup. Pretty easy match for her, 6-3, 6-2. So she's back from her stabbing. She's healthy enough to at least play pretty well. Carl, what do you think about Petra's comeback? What what should we expect from her? She's already exceeded my expectations. I'm not shocked that she won, but to win so easily is impressive. And I should say I'm not shocked that she won given that she entered. I was pretty shocked that she was entering. I I just thought, why not wait till grass? It's a better surface for her. It's already a pretty aggressive return schedule, but shocked entirely in a good way. I mean, players know when they're ready to come back, and I figured if she, if she said she was ready, she was she was ready to at least play a match. I don't know what, what she's going to do ahead of this. It may be that one match is all she has in her right now, but it's a pretty terrific way to start the tournament. The tour really missed her personally and just her talents and her, her aggressive, aggressive game style. I think you found in the past she's one of the most aggressive players on tour. And for a tournament that's missing Serena Williams, Maria Sharapova, and Victoria Azarenka, three names we've said as missing for many of the weeks on the show, uh, it's it's really nice to to have Petra back and to at least for a couple of days even be considered as a contender. Yeah, absolutely. The The tournament does need some big names. As you point out, the three top women are, are out. Roger Federer isn't there. Uh, Juan Martín Del Potro is a question mark. He called a press conference earlier today and then canceled it. So so who knows what where he stands, but it, but he's already a question mark. And Simona Halep has an ankle, ankle problem. All these issues around the biggest names in the tournament. And here we have someone who surprised us in coming back as quickly as she did. I remember when she was first stabbed last fall, uh, or last winter rather, she she didn't have a clear timetable. Some people were speculating she could be out for a year or more if she was ever ever able to come back. So like you say, Carl, this is, it, it is huge that she's back as fast as she is. It's fantastic that she was able to win a match. It means a lot to the tour, and it really gives a nice boost to a tournament that hasn't had a lot of, of things going for it in the narrative so far. So we have we have Petra back, and before we get into the meat of the draw, don't worry, we're, we have plenty to say about Nadal and Djokovic and, and Halep and the other favorites, but let's start with the last week of results. We, we had four tournaments, two men, two women, finishing yesterday, and four names who aren't quite on the tip of our tongue in terms of favorites for Roland Garros, but still people who you can't ignore. On the men's side, Stan Wawrinka won Geneva, Joe Wilfred Sanga won in Lyon, winning his first career clay title, interestingly enough. And on the women's side, it was Kiki Burtons, who also reached the semifinal in Rome and won in Nuremberg, while Sam Stozer, who's been a threat at the French Open in the past, won at beating her countrywoman Daria Gavrilova in Strasbourg. So that gives them a little boost coming into Roland Garros. But the question always is, with with the top players normally sitting out the week before slams, there seems to be some wisdom that there's not a lot of benefit in playing the week before slams. So no, no Rafa, no Djokovic, um, plenty of other big names sat it out. Carl, do you think that's a benefit to guys like Vavrinka and Sanga to play the week before, or do you think that, that playing the week before might actually work against them, where they haven't had as much rest, maybe they were focusing too much on winning last week and not enough on preparing for Roland Garros? Um, where do you stand on that? Well, I'd, I'd love to see an empirical answer, and maybe before Wimbledon or the U.S. Open, you'll have done a study to, to answer it, but 
My intuition is that in this case, anyway, all four of last week's champs are better off than they were, or maybe they're not better off, but we have more data to tell us more accurately that they are in good shape going into the French Open. We're talking about best of three tournaments. They ended on Saturday. The French Open has the kind of rolling first three days, first round. So there's there's some room to give them give them a break. And all of them, except maybe, as you said, Burton's, who, who played more in Rome, all of them were short on matches going into the French Open. And confidence is another thing that I'd like to see studied empirically instead of just accepting it as, as important. But it does seem like it would help to just get more matches, whether you win or lose them. And given the single elimination format that is now uniform on tour until the year-end finals, if you want to get matches, you have to enter more tournaments if you've had disappointing results or had to pull out. And these are not, except maybe Vavrinka names that would be considered among the very top contenders or wouldn't have been a week ago. On the other hand, with both fields looking pretty open, or at least portions of both draws looking pretty open, all four of these players have made the French Open semis, some more than once, some a final, and of course Vavrinka with the great, great run to the title in 2015. So certainly in terms of my expectations for them going into the tournament, I think they've all helped themselves quite a bit by making that run last week. I think that's particularly true on clay as well, because the season is relatively short leading up to the French Open, and because so many players are skipping the earlier clay events, if they do, as you mentioned, someone like Stozer uh, having a couple early exits in the clay season, there aren't that many opportunities to get a lot of matches. So if you crash out early in Madrid and Rome and you have chosen to play a limited schedule, then you might come into Roland Garros with only three or four clay matches under your belt. And that, that doesn't seem like a recipe for success. Uh, I also wanted to mention that back in 2013, I did do a mini-study on Australian Open warm-ups, and... I didn't really get anything concrete out of it. My, my conclusion was that uh, there's, there's no particular benefit to winning a warm-up tournament, but it, there was no, no clear negative result either. So it's not really clear. As, as you point out, Carl, it, the, there's enough time off between the title, on, the title match on Saturday and first-round matches early in the week. And also, as you've pointed out in previous podcasts, the top players tend to kind of play their way into slams. And... For someone like Rafa, who's had 10, 12 days off before his first round match, that could mean kind of warming back up. But for someone like Bobrinka, it means he doesn't have to be at his best when he plays his first match on either tomorrow or Tuesday. He could be a little rusty and doesn't really have to play his best until probably the weekend. So he doesn't have the full week off, obviously. He still has to play some matches, and maybe he'll even have to go four or five sets once. But... He doesn't have to be at the top of his game to even have a chance of winning the whole tournament. So I think you're right there. Um, I did want to mention a little bit more about Kiki Burton's. She's someone who, before, I don't know, six months, eight months ago, I, I didn't really think about in the conversation among, among top players. But since I ran these surface-specific ELO numbers, it turns out that among players in the draw, she's sixth highest rated in clay elo i don't even really think of her as as particularly good on clay but like we mentioned she made that semi-final in rome and here she was in nuremberg even though the, the draw was was pretty pretty easy for her but she's she's someone that we probably should be watching more closely on clay she hasn't hasn't come up in in any of the other conversations i've heard about possible dark horses i haven't seen her among the top um, betting favorites but at least according to this one algorithm, she should be in the conversation more than other people who we're always talking about, someone like Kristina Mladenovic, who's quite a, uh, a little bit further down the list. So I'll be interested to watch her. Um, Carl, moving on to the draw, before we, we dig into the, uh, just, the quarters. Just the before we do, a yeah. couple other things on the, the players playing last week. One is that I think it's... It's notable that all four of these players could be maybe in the top 10 contenders in, in their fields. Maybe with Stoster, that's ambitious, but former finalist and semifinalist another time shouldn't be completely counted out, good, really good on clay. But I think it's it's also interesting to think about the players who who entered that draw who are more in the middle of the pack. And I think you also did a post once pointing out that if 
let's say it was a player like Misha Zverev, who actually was a set away from winning Geneva before he lost to Vavrinka. For someone like him, who's ranked in the 30s, but also is probably weakest on clay because he's got a really aggressive serve and volley or return and volley game, getting to a final or even winning a 250 is maybe more, has a higher points and money expectation than a round of, of a slam where, you know, if he were choosing between the two, and of course it's not an explicit choice and maybe he even helped himself, he might choose that lesser event because his expectations either way going into the French Open probably weren't all that high. Now watch, he'll, he'll go and make the semi, which would be exciting to see. But yeah, I think it's, it's for players in that group where there's a real opportunity the, work, the week before the major to take advantage of weaker draws and also of a lot of top players maybe only wanting to get a match or two in. He actually went the uh, wild card route, uh, excuse me, the the um, qualifying route. So even though his rank was certainly high enough to get in, he made the decision late. So he got a lot of matches on clay, and he'll be an interesting case to watch. Does it seem like he's worn down or like he's energized and feeling better about the surface and more comfortable about the surface that otherwise isn't necessarily ideal for him? Yeah, that's true. And you're right to point out as well that Often the warm-up tournaments are extremely weak, uh, especially when there are two, as if there were this week. There's often one that's that, that's not bad as far as the draw is concerned, and the other one that's, that's particularly weak. Like this past this past two tournaments, Leon was pretty strong. He had Sanga, Kyrgios, uh, Ronich, I think, was in there, and Geneva was okay with Vavrinka, but Geneva was definitely the junior partner of these two tournaments. So. If you, if you did have all that information in advance, which is, is tough to have, but if you did have all that information to, to look at the draws of the tournaments you might enter, you're right to say that Zverev might have a better chance of piling up points with a run in Geneva than he would at the French Open. Uh, and as it turned out, I think he's, he's slated for a third-round match against Djokovic. So even if he does win his first couple matches in Roland Garros, he's not going to be around for the second week unless an absolute miracle occurs. Well, I don't know so, if we need to call it a miracle a anymore players. after Sam Querrey and Dennis Sisteman. But, uh, yeah, I agree. His, he was more likely to have a tough match early at the French than in Geneva and was kind of unlucky even that Favrinka made it to the final. He had a scare against Querrey earlier in the tournament. That's true. Um, so, anything else on the, the last week's tournament? No, let's, let's talk this week. French Open in full swing. All right. The French Open is underway. Um, as, we're, as we're recording this, we're uh, inching towards the end of Angelique Kerber's first round match against uh, Kate Makarova. And we'll keep you posted on that. But it could easily go the way of the unseeded player. So we could have a, a top seed crashing out within a few hours of the tournament starting on Sunday. But let, let's get into some of the lesser names in the draw first. Um, Carl, you and I are, are often kind of at the, the long tail end of interest in, in tennis. So we tend to pay more attention than some people to qualifiers, wild cards, other players on the fringe. Jeff, Jeff tell the listeners what have. match you sought out that time you were in at Wimbledon and just had a few hours before your flight. I don't remember what match. Oh, okay. <laughs> then I'll tell this briefly before we talk about clay and get off grass. You had a flight. You managed to get a ticket to Wimbledon just the night before. I'm pretty sure it was a center court ticket. And you eyed the the schedule of play, saw that Carlos Carlos Berluck and Ser, Sergei Stakovsky, Berluck, the, the noted grass court specialist, were playing on a side court, showed up early enough to guarantee a seat given that they were at a premium, and watched that match and then headed for Heathrow. Now, in fairness, that was not my entire day. I think I did have four or five hours at the tournament, and you're right. I had a center court ticket and saw one set, I believe, of Murray Goffin, but really one set of Murray Goffin that year was plenty. And I did see parts of a few other matches, but you're right. I, I did focus on Stakowski Burlock, which gives you some idea of my taste in live tennis. If there's a match I can watch with 12 other fans, I will always pick that over the match I can watch with two or 10,000 other fans. So you've got me right there. Um, for this first round in Roland Garros, Carl, are there, are there fringy names along the lines of Stokowski and Burlock that, that you're particularly interested in seeing? Well, it's, you mentioned Goffin, who's not fringy now, uh, and I think even that Murray Goffin match turned out to be pretty good. That was marked by Murray and Goffin as like a turnaround for him, and now he's 
probably in the top 10 contenders, maybe even like the top seven or eight for the French Open. So I don't know how fringy this is, but I love that he's playing Paul Henri Mathieu. Uh, he qualified, and he's a Frenchman, uh, veteran, and probably never quite fulfilled his potential in terms of ranking and results, but very impressive to have qualified having not gotten the wild card. So excited to see players like that. I think they're ones to sort of give their moment to in the early rounds, even if even if he just plays a valiant set uh, and gets a set off a top ten guy, or maybe Goffin is eleven now. Uh, that would be that would be a nice thing to mark in the first few days. Whereas I think starting maybe day five or the second week is where you can really uh, focus on and enjoy the the better players, the the higher ranked players. And then speaking of another big name from the past, Sara Rani looked really good in qualifying and could play Kristina Mladenovic in the second round. So that that's a name that no one's really thought of much in the last 18 months, perhaps, or two years. She's really been slumping, but she's by far the most dangerous on clay, has one of the weakest serves on tour, one of the best returns. So we could see a lot of matches where holding return is more important than holding serve, and she's just, she's really steady and hard to break down. So so those are a couple of, of names I'm excited about. What about you? Well, I'm interested in, in seeing how well Irani plays because obviously she has the history of the tournament, a former finalist, probably has a little bit to prove having to come through qualifying. But I was shocked that she got through so easily. As you point out, she, she has such a weak serve. And even though, even if her opponents weren't particularly strong, it seems like every time I've, I've noticed an Irani match going on this year, it's been against someone rather anonymous and she's played a 75-minute first set in a tiebreak. So I was pleasantly surprised that Irani made such short work of the qualifying, and I, I, I can't see her getting past Mladenovic. I mean, it, it's obviously conceivable, but it, it's tough to imagine her getting very far. But it, it would be a great story uh, to see her have one last deep run. Now, on the women's side, there are two names I'm really interested in. Uh, the first one is Marketa Vondrusova. I think we talked about her in our first podcast. She won uh, a few weeks ago on the hard courts so of WTA International in BLBN, Switzerland. And that was on hard courts, but just a couple weeks ago at a 100K ITF in Trnava in the Czech Republic, she won that tournament as well. Went through pretty smoothly, beat some pretty decent players for a 100K. Uh, she came through qualifying as well, also pretty smoothly. She ended up in a really tough section of the draw. Uh, she could get Daria Kazakina in the second round, and then she's on, on track to face Simona Halep in the third round. So we might not see very much from her this year, but of the young players in the draw, she, she might be the most promising. And if she had landed somewhere else, or if, if for instance, Halep ends up being injured and can't play, uh, she's a real dark horse. And the other name that interests me is Amanda Anisimova, who even younger, I forget whether she's 15 or 16 now, but she's played really well in ITFs. She won the the USTA wildcard, uh, the reciprocal wildcard to get into the French Open, and she won that wildcard playing ITFs on clay, so she's she's at least somewhat capable on the American weird green clay stuff, and she has a really easy first rounder in Kurumi Nara, so we could see her in the second round against Venus Williams, who I know you're interested in, in, in seeing at the French Open this year. So that's a couple of really young names, but players who I think could largely skip the ITF level and become factors on tour pretty quickly, especially Von Drusova, who's already kind of done that with her title in, in BLBN. She's already, I think, in the top 80, so she'll regularly get direct entries into tournaments like, like this one. Um, Anybody else, Carl, that, that you're watching early on? Well, this is a name on par with some of the others, so maybe not not at all uh, a, a hip, tennis hipster name to relate to listeners. But even though no one is listening to this live, if, if this were a live show, we, we would interrupt to mention that Makarova has completed the win over Curver 6-2-6-2. And Makarova has so many big wins over big players at majors, even, even Kerber struggling to lose with that scoreline as the number one seed in the first few hours of the tournament is a pretty big story. And it would be fun to see Makarova make a run, too. I think both of us enjoy players on the fringe. I, maybe from watching fewer of the smaller tournaments, tend to like the players who used to be in the spotlight and and are still trying to make a couple more deep runs. And, And you're more 
on top of the players who have not made a deep run yet but could be winning these majors in the future. Uh, it was interesting you said that I, I'm looking forward to seeing Venus Williams. I hope a lot of people are looking forward to seeing Venus Williams. Even though it's not her best surface, I love that she's still showing up at around 37 years old on her worst surface. And uh, I, I think as her coach has said, hey, this isn't this isn't a draw with Rafa and that she could actually win. So, um yeah, the, those are those are some names, and you know, you also flagged in our show notes Escobedo, who's someone I've been watching all year. He's one of the most promising young Americans, even though he's gotten much less hype than a few of the others, uh, especially Tiafo and Taylor Fritz and Riley Opelka, and he's shown some chops on clay and could have an All-American second round against Sam Querrey, another American who is more in that category of players. People aren't thinking of as contenders because they're older and past their peak, but he's looked really good this year. He, he might be playing his best tennis this year. He, as I mentioned earlier, took Favrinka deep. Uh, you know, he was up a set and five all in their match in Geneva. He had match points, I think, against Team, who's been one of the best clay, clay players. So, who knows? Maybe Sam Query could make a run, and uh, he and Escobedo could could have a, a fun match. I mean, Americans meeting each other past the first round at the French Open, especially on the men's side, would would count as as a surprise and a highlight based on how Americans have been on clay in recent years. Yeah, and we will talk about Isner's place in the draw a little bit later on because he's, he's another player we've talked about as an American who could do some damage at Roland Garros. But since you mentioned the, the Kerber result, result with, with her out already and Makarova with the upset, let's dig into the women's draw. And that, that segues nice to, nicely to the very top of the draw. And before we dig into the details, Carl, I'm not sure if you saw this. I just, I just posted a, a, a new article on my blog just minutes before we started recording, so you're forgiven if you haven't read the whole thing yet. But I did mention mention some of the research to you that that I was digging into the degree of chaos on the WTA tour since one of the the continuing themes in our our show, especially last week, I, I believe you assigned me this project was was how unpredictable the WTA has really been. Uh, obviously, there are some high-profile instances like all of Kerber's losses and Serena Williams' loss to Madison Brangle in the first tournament of the year. There, no number one seeds have won any WTA events until Burton did in Nuremberg this past week. So it, it's been very unpredictable. Lots of winners who you wouldn't expect, lots of players who you would expect to play better who haven't. And I went through and quantified just how well the ranking system, as well as ELO and surface-specific ELO ratings did, every year for the last 28 years, back to 1990. And it turned out that no matter which ranking system you use, uh, we are at peak WTA unpredictability by a wide margin. So on average in the past, the ranking system predicts the winner of matches about 68% of the time. This year it's 62%. Um, ELO is, is similar, surface-specific ELO has a similar difference. So it's not a matter of the ranking system being bad, although the ranking system has its problems. It's a matter of something something fundamentally crazy going on. Like, something, something in the locker room says that the top women are vulnerable, uh, the players on the way up or the, the players further down in the rankings uh, have maybe more confidence, they're more likely to win a match. So. The fact that Makarova beat Kerber today, there's lots of reasons that people thought Kerber was was vulnerable, uh, particularly her her not her discomfort on clay, but it, there's something broader going on, and it's something we've been talking about for a few weeks now. In that Roland Garros doesn't really have a clear favorite on the women's side, especially with with Halep's injury question mark. Um, the one thing you can count on is a fair number of big upsets and the numbers bear that out. Yeah. And so, I, I, I'd love to react to the post because I, I listened to you and read maybe a, a sign of my, my ill spent life of, of multitasking. And I, I think there, there, there are a few really notable results. There are implications for the draw and we should get to them very soon. But I, one thing that I think is really interesting is that you found that, no matter what system you use, the WTA is the least predictable it's been in the 28 years you studied. So it's not specifically a failing of the WTA rankings. On the other hand, you found that surface-specific predictions using ELO 
which is, you know, the boiling down results of head-to-heads and weighting more recent results more heavily. Uh, so it takes into account whether you won or lost and who you who you beat, that it's actually done better this year than the WTA does on average. So, so if we were you, setting our expectations using that, we would be less surprised this year than you would be surprised on average uh, in the course of in the history that you covered by your study, if you've been looking at WTA rankings, so there there is that sense of like, well, if we were just looking at a different signal, this year would make more sense than the signal we we normally look at. Um, I'd also I'm also really excited to see what this says about the men's and and how open this year is. It feels like there. I don't think this would necessarily make a difference for the WTA based on how unpredictable it's been everywhere this year. I, I think in terms of what people have experienced, it, it would be something where it's weighting slams more heavily and then weighting masters or premieres more heavily than the lower level tournaments because that's really where people tend to expect the top players to do best, even though they tend to do well everywhere. Um, so, so that could be an interesting wrinkle. And I think it's also worth emphasizing to the more analytically minded of our listeners that it's a pretty interesting result that surface-specific ELO does a lot better than regular ELO because, as you mentioned earlier in the program, sometimes players only get a few matches on clay and generally get even fewer on grass than they do on clay. So you would expect, typically, that knowing something about the vast majority of matches that players have played that aren't on the surface they're playing on, especially on clay and and grass, would give us some signal, give us some information about how we expect them to do. But it seems like ignoring it completely does better. And that also speaks to the kind of common understanding that tennis has uh, become more normalized on surfaces and that players have gotten more comfortable playing on all of them. It does seem like with the current point system and mandatory zeros and just the more professional, uniform nature of the tour, that players are less likely to skip whole seasons. But it does seem like, nonetheless, the uh, preference and the advantage on certain surfaces for certain players should be about as strong as ever based on surface elo continuing to be such a successful way to predict matches. Yeah, I was really surprised by that as well. And one technical reason that I, I didn't expect that result was that the system I used before ELO, I called J-Rank, and I it, it has some similarities with the ELO, but I, I generated it with a lot of messy code on my own. And the way that I, I calculate surface-specific rankings with J-Rank, it, it, it is a blend of surface-specific results and overall results. So I expected there to be something similar for ELO, where... For, for clay results, you might only have 10, 12 matches a year for s- certain players, and I expected to get better results by blending that with an overall rating or hard court ratings or something, at least at, at least maybe 20% overall ratings, 80% surface specific or something like that. And my first thought as to why it, it could be working the way it does, that only using single surface results is so effective, is that it, is that it is more common for players to last longer, um, for older players to remain successful. So it could be that more than in the past, um, that a player's results from two, three, even more years ago work as sort of a stand-in for more recent results. So if you have a player who won the French Open three years ago, she might have had some worse results in the meantime. Her ELO might have gone down, but that should still be a factor. And it whether it's precisely correct or not, or is the best way, I don't know, but it ends up working to have some of those results stay in uh, stay in the mix, continue influencing the ranking for a long time. I noticed that, for instance, Venus Williams's grass court ELO is still really high, and uh, I, I'm convinced there's a better way to do grass court ELO with some kind of weighting, because the, there are so few grass court results, but if you take someone like Venus, whose best results are sometime in the past... If you combine the fact that she was so good in the past with the fact that she's still playing, she still thinks she's she's good enough to compete, then maybe, since older players are more successful these days, maybe that's all you need to know. Uh, maybe it is valuable to know some, at least waiting a little bit, their results from a decade ago, combined with the fact that they're, they consider themselves effective enough to continue playing. So th- th- there's a lot of factors there, and there's a lot more work to be done, but... For the women especially, I think it's important to emphasize how much more effective the surface-specific results are 
because I, 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 this might be some bias talking because I've done more analytics with, with men's tennis and women's tennis, but I get the sense that people talk about surface preferences more with men's tennis than women's tennis. And we can talk about people like Kerber or Wozniacki or Johanna Conte as not good on clay or someone like Carlos Suarez Navarro as a, a clay quarter, but because there isn't this armada of clay guys like the, like the Spaniards on the men's side, it isn't as common a topic of discussion. And one of the things that this last batch of results is telling me is that for women it should be. We need to pay more attention to the surface preferences of different players. And someone like Kiki Burtons, who you might think of as you know, a sort of anonymous number 20 in the world, maybe she really is this good on clay and maybe we should be talking about her more. And we um, and we've talked before about Laura Siegemund, and you know it's it's. I, I wonder if some of it is that there is the South American clay swing in the men's side, and there, on both on both tours, maybe more prominently, uh, for the men, there's the there's the swing after Wimbledon, which is like a strange time to play clay. So players sort of more announce themselves as as clay specialists. You also have on the challenger level, you could play in clay almost all year, so you can specialize in terms of just what you have experience on, what you have results on, and, and also signal your your preferences. So maybe that's a factor. Maybe also that men come to net more, so that feels like a more obvious way to distinguish between players who do and don't feel comfortable on grass and, and net players generally being less successful on clay. And I also just wanted to throw in there that maybe Venus Williams still is really a threat on grass. And I'd love to see you dig in more on the grass results ahead of Wimbledon and during the grass season because the there, there's a controversy pretty much every year around Wimbledon's system for tweaking the rankings for its own seedings. They used to do it even more heavily, I think, and that's very much based on prioritizing older grass results over more recent results on other surface, and maybe they're onto something, or maybe not. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see if it's as true on grass as on clay. Yeah, the, in this is kind of uncharted territory, so I'm very interested to, to see more of what the numbers have to say about that. So it is the first day of the French Open, and we are already 32 minutes into this podcast, so we probably should start talking about the Grand Slam draw. So top quarter on the women's side, we already know Angelique Kerber is out. Katarina Makarova takes over her place in the draw. This quarter was supposed to be on paper between Kerber and Svetlana Kuznetsova, but we have some other names in there. In Kerber's section is Sam Stozer, who we already talked about, Petra Kvitova's in there. Uh, in Kuznetsova's section, we have Caroline Wozniacki, who don't really see her as a factor here. She retired with injury last week. The Kiki Burtons is also in there. Um, Carl, how do you see that playing out with, with Kerber out and some of these other names as more likely factors? Well, Kuznetsova has won the French Open. She's had a pretty good season and, and in general has had like a, a great career resurgence in recent years. So I, I think it's, I, I think in this case, like the ranking is meaningful and it, it seems like she's probably the player to beat now in that, in that section, but certainly notable that Makarova now has gotten through and also opened up a little mini section for herself where she won't face another top seed for a little while by knocking out the very top seed. And yes, Doser and Burton's we, we talked about earlier as being good on clay and have done well at this tournament before. So and, and Burton's being set up against Wozniacki, like you say, I don't even see Wozniacki making it to that match most likely. And it also means it's probably a chance for, for Kvitova to uh, to continue playing herself back into form. And even if it turns out her form isn't good enough to win the tournament or contend, she may be able to stick around and enliven the tournament and just add some excitement and enthusiasm to, to really one of the, the happier stories of the of the season so far that she has returned as quickly and as well as she has. And a couple other names I, I didn't even mention initially in that section that opened up by Makarova are two players who have already won today, Yelena Ostapenko, who won a three-setter against Luisa Chirico, and Monica Puig, who upset Roberta Vinci. So they're both into the second round, and they're both players who, whoever wins that match between the two of them, would have, on paper anyway, faced Kerber in the third. Now they'll likely get Makarova. So there's some opportunities there. Ostapenko made a clay court final, uh, lost to Kazakina in Charleston a couple months ago. Uh, Puig probably is not a, a, a clay quarter first, but she's someone who we've seen can win some big matches. I mean, she won an Olympic gold medal. So can't write them off either. So there are some interesting names here with the, the number one seed out. 
Um, the next section we have reigning champion Carl. You've already questioned that a little bit, but reigning champion Gargini Muguruza uh, with a projected quarterfinal against Dominika Sibokova. Uh, Irani's in there in Muguruza's section that we mentioned earlier. Mirjana Lucic, uh, Christina Mladenovic is there, and in Sibokova's section we have Venus Williams, who we've already talked about, and Daria Gavrilova who lost in the final to Stozer yesterday uh, in Strasbourg. Uh, what do you see coming out here? And most importantly, Carl, um, how deep do you see Mukurusa going? You've, you've cast some doubt on her chances before as sort of a, a not, as, not as hopeful a reigning French Open champion as we would normally expect. So what do you see coming out of this? Well, I'm glad you clarified, because the way you said it the first time, it sounded like I questioned whether she won last year. And she sure did win and beat, beat, beat <laughs> Serena Williams in a final, a really good one with a terrific lob winner on match points. So, no, I, I, I don't take anything away from what she's done before, but I think she's been struggling with a neck injury and just generally has had pretty poor results, I think, until Rome. So I, I, as much as I'd love to see Venus make a run, and maybe she can at least to the second week, I like Lucic or Mladenovic to come out of this quarter. Sibylkova also has been shaky. So this looks to me like another quarter. Maybe every quarter looks this way, really, looking, looking down the list as one where the projected quarterfinal is probably a lot more likely not to happen than, than to happen. And, and also a reminder of how different the draw would look if Sharapova were in it. Yeah, absolutely. That's something we haven't talked about at all. Amazingly, I think that for the first time in our nine episodes, we've made it through the first half without mentioning Sharapova's name. But based on surface-specific ELO ratings, Sharapova is every bit as as good on paper as Simona Halep on clay, Simona being our favorite at this point by a pretty wide margin. So just imagine if one of these top players had seen Maria Sharapova's name come up as a first-round opponent. I'm not even sure if that's that's good for the tournament exactly, but it would certainly be make things more interesting. And speaking of Sharapova, actually, another interesting name that is is lurking in this section is Annette Kontavite, an, another young player. She's uh, 21. She got to the quarters in Rome. She got to the quarters in Stuttgart, lost to Sharapova there. But the way she got to the quarters in Stuttgart was by beating Garbini Muguruza in three sets. So... She is Muguruza's possible second-round opponent, if assuming she can get past Monica Nicolescu. Uh, and she's someone who, kind of like Von Drusova, may, maybe a little more promising than Von Drusova on paper, uh, someone who could end up making a surprise run to the, the fourth round or the, the quarterfinal, upsetting a couple really good players along the way. So, Carl, now on to the third section, the Simona Halep section. Simona is not the number one seed, but on paper, whether you trust my numbers or the betting markets, she's the huge favorite, but she comes in with an ankle injury. Um, she suffered that injury in the Rome final against Alina Svitolina, and sure enough, Alina Svitolina is her projected quarterfinal opponent. So we could have a blockbuster quarterfinal between those two, but as always... Lots of question marks on this side of the draw. We have uh, Daria Kazakina as a possible second rounder for Simona Halep. Uh, we have Elena Vesnina and Carlos Suarez Navarro in this section as well. Uh, would knowing what we, I mean, the little that we know about Halep's injury and how severe it is, I mean, we've heard that she's looked great in practice. Uh, are you, are you still going with Halep in this section, or, or would you give it to Svitolina with the injury evidence we have? I would give it to Svitolina just because, with Halep especially, if her movement is hampered, I mean, that's such a blow to her chances. Um, but it's it, this does feel like, without the Halep injury, like the, the most solid bet for, the, for a quarter to play to seed. And... Simona does have the chance if she is somewhat shaky physically but but sort of able to play through it she does have a chance to play through it with a relatively straightforward draw to that quarterfinal so uh, I think we'll know in a few days if Halep sort of deserves what your ratings show what betting markets show which is that even hobbled in, in a draw this open without so many top names she is by far the favorite It will be interesting to see what the betting markets say after after her first match or once she's established that she's playing because yes the the markets favor her heavily to win the tournament compared to other players i think she's at, at 
better than six to one at this point, which is way higher than anyone else. I don't think anyone else is is under ten to one. So, though, but those bets are those bets are voided if she doesn't play. So, pe- people who are putting money on Halep to win the tournament aren't really saying she's six to one to win the tournament. They're saying she's six to one to win the tournament if she plays her first round match. So. Once she does play her first round match, especially if she's shaky against Sepalova, uh, we could see the market take a more a more pessimistic look uh, about her next couple rounds. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. But the the real chaos on the women's side of the draw is the last quarter, and that that's where you know, I've probably said the word surface specific elo more in the last forty five minutes than I ever hoped to in my life. But here we go again. I'm fascinated to have these numbers because. The fourth quarter, the, on paper, is Johanna Kanta and Karolina Pliskova. Pliskova being the number two seed, has not played well in play at all. And based on the surface-specific numbers, Kanta is actually the underdog in her first match against uh, Su Wai Se. And Pliskova is just barely favored against Sai Sai Zhang, who's also not a strong clay court player at all. And I, I haven't checked the numbers, but I think Pliskova would actually be the underdog in the second round against Katarina Siniakova if they end up there. So we have two big names who will definitely be in the conversation for, for Wimbledon, for the hard court um, premieres, for the U.S. Open. But on paper, they, we may not even see them on Wednesday or Thursday. So, Carl, do you think that's, that's too harsh? Um, should we be should we be taking them more seriously because we know how well they can play, or, or do you think we should trust the surface specific numbers and figure they're headed for an early exit? Yeah, I would lean towards taking a blend of surface specific and others, at least in my head, for for players who specifically have had much better results and many more results on other surfaces recently. I think it makes sense that overall surface specific does better, but I'd still be a little surprised if if it was rating these two correctly. Uh, who've, who've had such good last 52 weeks on, on hard courts especially. Um, yeah, and it would also just be so typical of the of the trolling tennis gods to make this the quarter that plays to seed because there really aren't, you know, you mentioned players who are going to be favored over them by ELO, but there aren't that many big names elsewhere in this section. I think the, um, you know, Agnieszka Radwanska is here, and she's not most comfortable on clay, certainly. It, it is interesting to see Safarova here and to see her unseated because she's a former finalist, had taken a set in that final uh, against Serena Williams in 2015. So I think it's it's possible for Kanta and Pliskova to, to raise their surface-specific ELO, which I'm sure is a phrase that's really running through their heads right now as, like, the motivation going into the tournament uh, by, by taking advantage of the draw. Yeah, Carl, I'm looking forward to the next time you attend a tournament as, and, as press and, and ask the ultimate softball question of, of, of what a player expects to accomplish with their surface-specific ELO in the upcoming tournament. So that's something I think we all can look forward to. And you, I'm glad you mentioned Safarova. Um, she's long been a favorite of mine, and she's, she's struggled to build her ranking back up from injury, but she... She has looked okay in a couple matches I've seen from her lately, and she has, uh, as we've mentioned, a very open section of the draw. Um, she could face Anastasia Pavlochenkova in the second round, Coco Vandaway in the third round. These are, are players who could use some heavy hitting to, to win a few matches, but certainly not uh, clay quarters first. So things could open up, interestingly, for Safarova, and I would love to see her make a run to the fourth round of the quarters we've seen in the past that she can play very, very well at this event. So, Carl, any, any final thoughts on the women's draw before we switch things over to the Rafael Nadal show? Um, well, we, we could talk about a result that's already in. We had a uh, our first marathon go-long match, and it, it's won by an American. I'm always interested in watching the Americans on clay, and Madison Brangle beat Julia Gurgis, who's been struggling in the last few years, but is always dangerous on clay. I, I'd like to see her surface-specific ELO, which I'm sure after this episode will become a uh, tennis brand that will sponsor Djokovic in 2019. Uh, Brangle beat her 13-11 in the third, and you know, I think as you found in your research, these sorts of matches are not a great signal of players' uh, chances in future rounds, both because they, they struggle to win, and I think you also found that there probably is an added fatigue effect as well. But 
hey, women go long at three of the four slams whenever it goes past six all in the third set, sometimes really long, and that's also evidence to me, not that we need the evidence, that women could certainly play best of five if the slams took them up on the offer they've made to do so. And I I wouldn't mind seeing it. I also wouldn't mind seeing slams be shorter in the early rounds, but these matches, even on the first day, show that, let's say from the quarters on, the men and women could both play best of five just fine, and we'd probably have some pretty exciting matches. Yeah, if Madison Brengel can play uh, five sets, then I think the top women probably could as well. Uh, I always love seeing Brengel do well. I'm not a huge fan of her game. I don't I don't seek out opportunities to watch her play, but I do gravitate toward underdogs and I think there was a really funny moment in her match against Serena Williams when she scored that upset in Auckland in January where she was talking to her coach during a, a mid-match coaching visit and she was recorded saying that she thought Serena was surprised at how bad she was or she couldn't believe how bad she was. And I mean, Brangle's game is a little unorthodox and she's, she's not going to impress you, but she, she can win these matches. She can catch someone on a bad day and figure out how to win. So it's nice to see her get a result like this. Gurgis is more more like the player who has the tools but doesn't always bring them on any given day. So certainly on, on a different day, Gurgis could have made this a 6-2, 6-3 walk in the park, but it's nice to see Brengel get this result even having to work as hard as she did for it. Yeah, and another American woman also just won Shelby Rogers over Arakovich and uh, nice to see another American woman through, and Mikhail is down 5-6 to Kuznetsova. We're really time-stamping the show, but Kuznetsova being a, a top-10 seed, Mikhail playing her tough in that first first set, it's, it's, it's nice to see some of the lesser-known Americans with good starts. But, yeah, let's, let's move on to the men. All right, so the, the top quarter of the draw is, I think, the really unpredictable one because, of course, that belongs to... Copyright number one seed Andy Murray. Um, he is still number one in the ATP rankings despite a pretty dreadful season so far. On paper, this quarter belongs to him and Kane Shikori, but we also have uh, Alexander Zverev in here, uh, the winner from Rome. He, he would face Nishikori in the fourth round. Pablo Cuevas is also in there. Uh, Del Potro is in there, although his health is in question. And also, John Isner is a potential fourth-round uh, opponent for Andy Murray. So I, I think I've asked some form of this question almost every week, Carl, so I apologize if, if this is getting re- repetitive. But what do you see as the, as the likely outcome here for Andy Murray? Well, you say he's had a dreadful season. It's been really dreadful on clay. And uh, Stephanie Kowalczyk, a tennis a- analyst uh, for Tennis Australia, has, has run some numbers on comparing his clay season, both serve and return so far this year, and that it's it's back in the, in the dreadful levels that he was showing on clay much earlier in his career, which is disappointing to see after two really good years on clay and run to the French Open final last year. So, yeah, I'd still be surprised if he loses early, given the ease of his draw, but I'd be pretty surprised too if he emerged from this quarter uh, which maybe I shouldn't be because slams best of five chance to play her way in day off Murray just being so tough to, to win three sets off of in, in normal circumstances um, but yeah I, I, um, I would favor Zverev, Cuevas or Nishikori and Isner is an interesting mention because he had that run to the semis in Rome he took a set off off, uh, Zverev which Djokovic wasn't able to do in the final and like like some other big men including Delpo who I hope does play he even if his movement isn't the best on the surface can really take advantage of being able to neutralize the, the high bounce, being able to set up for his shots. And as we talked about in a recent episode, his serve is going to be dangerous and, and incredibly hard to break on any surface. So uh, he'd be another American to watch, but I, I give Zverev, Cuevas, and Nishikori a better chance. And Nishikori maybe less than the other two because he's had injury problems and he looked pretty shaky against Misha Zverev in, in uh, Geneva. Yeah, the story here might be that the, the draw opened up really nicely for Alexander Zverev. As you point out, Nishikori has injury problems. Um, we're not expecting big things from Andy Murray. So there's nothing really standing between Zverev and a semifinal if, if he plays reasonably well. We shouldn't call um, Cuevas nothing, magic. but yes, relative to other draws he could have had, it's about as good as he could have hoped for. 
That's true. Yeah, and, and of course there's, in, in a draw like this, best of five sets, that he's going to have to win matches against tough players no matter where he is in the draw. And Cuevas is someone he lost to in Madrid. I actually just watched that match yesterday with the, the match with Cuevas' uh, just unthinkable behind-the-back shot against Zverev at the net. But even in that match, Cuevas won in three sets, including a, a bagel in the second set. But that more, looked more like it was Zverev either just having a mental lapse or, or being fatigued in the second set. It's easy to see that one flipping the other direction. So I'd love to see that rematch. Uh, but I, I don't see Cuevas as any more of a threat to Zverev as even a slightly injured Nishikori, I think. Um, but one other matchup I wanted to highlight in this section is a possible second rounder between John Isner and Paolo Lorenzi, which would have to be like the, the, the most ridiculous, extreme contrast of styles um, you can imagine in this French Open. Lorenzi, for those of you who don't know, is Italian. He's one of the oldest players in the draw. I think he's 36 now. And he's, he's just like a traditional dirt baller, slightly unorthodox style, really passive, but really good defensive player. Um, I'm not sure if he and Isner have ever played each other, but I would love to see that, especially with one of them having to having to be dominant over uh, over a full five setter. So we'll, we'll watch for that one. On to the second section, Carl. That's where Vavrinka sits, as well as Marin Cilic. Those are the presumptive quarterfinalists. Um, of course, Vavrinka is always a big question mark. But you compared them a few weeks ago after Cilic won that Istanbul title. Um, that, that both of them were players who were inconsistent but could put together a good run, dangerous on any given day. I think the name that you're going to find more interesting is that we have Nick Kyrgios lurking there. Kyrgios could face um, Joe Wilford Sanga in the third round and then Chilich in the fourth. Do you, am I right, Carl? Do you see Kyrgios as a, as a favorite in this section? I was much more interested in his chances a couple of weeks ago. He's uh, withdrawn from some tournaments. He's he's faced the tragedy in his his personal life of his grandfather dying, and they had a really close relationship. And he has he he lost early last week. So you know I, I, he is a, also a big match player, and I think is is not someone who lives by the cliche that so many pl- players spout early in tournaments of not looking ahead in the draw. I'm sure he'd love to play Tsonga in Paris. So I, I'm hoping that he, he finds some form here, but I could also see him saying, you know what, this was just a hard luck clay season for me, and I'm, I'm really looking ahead to grass. So I, the name that really pops to me is Fabio Fonini. I, I love watching him when he's playing well on clay, and he could easily lose before the third round, and hell, Favrinka could lose early. I mean, you mentioned earlier that he should have a chance to play deep into the tournament, even if he's not at his best. But then again, he was he had to save match points against Dan Evans last year at a U.S. Open. They ended up winning. So who knows? But Vavrinka Fonini, if they both get there, would be fantastic. And I think we both said on a recent show that Fonini at his best on clay is easily a top 10 player. So he won't have that many more chances to make a run, but maybe he'll be inspired by his... I think now wife, Panetta, Flavia Panetta, and her unexpected run at the U.S. Open a couple of years ago. So I'd love to see Fonini uh, make some headlines in Paris. Yeah, Fonini's also a, a new father with, with Flavia Panetta. Um, I think that, that they had the baby just a, a day or two after Fonini crashed out of Rome. He upset Murray there and then lost his Zverev, I believe, in the next round, but had some better news after that with his new child. Oh, and, and better so news with Zverev's subsequent matches. He he made that result look better in retrospect with, with who else he beat the rest of the week. Yeah, that's always what you want to do. And Fanini serves as a nice segue to the third section of the draw, which, of course, is where Rafael Nadal is waiting. And Nadal has gotten pretty lucky. Uh, the possible quarterfinalist on paper is Milos Ronic. But most of the players we've talked about as real threats to Nadal uh, are elsewhere in the draw. Dominic Team is one, and Team we'll talk about in a minute. He's in Djokovic's quarter. But we've already mentioned Isner and Kyrgios, guys that could could just have a big day and manage to, to eke out a, a match against Rafa. Uh, Fanini is another player that's played him tough in the past, and he's in the other half. So <laughs> there's not a lot of danger here for Nadal early on. Um, he could get Jack Sock or Roberto Batista Agu in the fourth round. Um, Carino Busta and Grigor Dimitrov are in the the other part of this quarter along with Ronich. But it really pretty much looks like the Rafael Nadal show. 
Do you see Ronish being much of a threat to him, Carl? Well, I think Ronish is more likely than not to not make their appointed meeting. He hasn't looked. He's looked good, but not great on clay. And I'd probably favor Dimitrov over him if, if they do meet in the fourth round. So, yeah, I think this is about as well as the draw could have played out for Rafa. I mean, he was my big favorite even before I saw the draw. But given that he should be pretty well-rested and and make it easily to the semis, um, it, it's really looking good for him to get yet a third, tenth title of his career in this clay season after doing it in Monte Carlo and Barcelona. Yeah, it, it is shaping up nicely for him. And to emphasize that, I used the surface-specific ELO numbers to, to generate the tournament forecast, and those numbers put Nadal at 49% to win the whole thing, uh, which is as high as I've seen anyone at a slam in recent years. And it, those numbers also emphasize how lopsided this draw is. Obviously, with one player at 49%, it's going to be lopsided in favor of, of one half of the draw. But Nadal's at 49%. Djokovic is at 35%, which doesn't really leave a lot of room for other players. <laughs> Certainly not a lot of room for the other half. So uh, on paper, Djokovic looks like a big threat. Now, b- before we assume a Djokovic... Nadal semifinal, we have to talk about how Djokovic is going to get there. Uh, nothing really threatening looming in Djokovic's section, but his possible uh, quarterfinal opponents are Dominic Team and David Goffin, a favorite of yours. Um, now, of course, recently we saw Djokovic absolutely destroy Dominic Team, love and one. Uh, do you think that there's any chance that if Team does make the quarter, he could turn that around and really challenge Djokovic? Oh, of course, for sure. I mean, we talked, I think, last week about how that result was sandwiched by Team beating Nadal pretty handily in straight sets and then Djokovic losing in a match that was less close than the score looked in straight sets to Zverev. So if you were just looking at those other two matches, you'd say, wow, Djokovic doesn't have much of a chance against Team." So I could certainly see Team turning it around. Then again, Djokovic also beat him pretty handily in the semis last year at the French Open, and I've heard several people say that was the last match, even though Djokovic went on to win his next one against Murray in the final, and Murray, at the time, number two player, playing great on clay, so that was a good result. But just in terms of how Djokovic played, that result against Team last year, people pointed to as his best play until he destroyed Team in Rome almost a year later. So maybe there's something about that matchup that really works for Djokovic or doesn't for Team. But I just I wouldn't count out team in any match at this tournament based on how well he's played on clay this year and his defeat of Rafa in Rome. Yeah, the team has said that it's a tough matchup for him, uh, especially compared to the, the Nadal matchup, that, that he actually uh, sees himself as, as matching up better against Rafa than Djokovic. And the, the examples you gave about the other matches in Rome can kind of go both ways, I think, that if you've got a really strong Dominic team coming off of upsetting Rafa and you've got a Novak Djokovic who can't even beat Alexander Zverev, then one one deduction you could make is that the team Djokovic result was just an outlier and we can write it off. On the other hand, you could say it's a really good Dominic team being thrashed by an, an, an off-peak Novak Djokovic. That could, on the other hand, tell you that the matchup is that lopsided, that even when when Joke, when team is playing better than Djokovic, the matchup is so tilted towards Djokovic's style of play that it's it's still going to go in his direction. But your so research has interesting to see them play. Your more research often. has typically shown, though, I think that the that there's a lot more signal in overall body of work than in a specific matchup. I, I guess there are probably some exceptions, and you could say Nadal Federer on clay is one of them. But I'm curious if you think that you gave two options, if you think it's more likely that team really is just facing a a specifically bad matchup with Djokovic or that we could have a fluky small sample. Well, I think there's some of both. Um, And you're right. My research has shown that you generally don't want to put too much weight on head-to-heads. Even really lopsided head-to-heads don't don't give you that much extra predictive value on top of just looking at overall results. So if I were taking two players that I didn't know very well, hadn't watched recently, and had to give you a prediction, I would go with the surface ELO numbers and wouldn't think twice about it. And this might be the fact that I'm just trying to be more agreeable to all the tennis commentators out there, but 
I do think that at the top of the game, the matchups are more of a factor. And I'm not exactly sure how to approach that from a research perspective, because there's just not very many of those matchups. Uh, most of the time, you have cases where one player is better than the other, Elo says they're better, their head-to-head in career is 7-2 to two or something. They're, there's not really much to find there, even if there is something quirky about the matchup or not. So I think ultimately someone, maybe me, needs to dig into the unexpected head-to-heads. And the trouble there is you do have some long-term head-to-heads that, that don't match up with ELO. Like you mentioned, Federer and Nadal on clay being so lopsided. It certainly seems like there's something there. But for something like Djokovic team, especially if you want to go surface-specific and say Djokovic team on clay... I don't know if we'll ever have a large sample of those matches. So if you look at your average, like, 2-1 to one or 3-1 to one head-to-head, there's going to be a lot of noise there. And I don't really know how you'd isolate the cases where it's the matchup talking or whether it's just noise talking uh, or any number of other factors, like something like team being fatigued from finally beating Rafael Nadal. So it, it, it's really tough to say. Um... Carl, any any other other things you wanted to touch on in the men's draw? Well, just just quickly that Ramos, is, who already is through to the second round, is also in that Team Djokovic quarter and uh, beat Djokovic, I think, in Monte Carlo and then almost beat Murray in Barcelona. So he's he's also someone who could upend that Team Djokovic and Djokovic-Nadal-anticipated matchups. Yes. He is in there as well, um, definitely more of a clay quarter than, than Djokovic, even though you'd still favor Djokovic on paper. One last Roland Garros thing I wanted to talk about, since it is Sunday, there is tennis going on, and we are talking about it on that Sunday. Where do you stand, Carl, on the Sunday start? It's the one slam, I believe, still, that, that's doing a Sunday start. Before the other slams, the, the Sunday is kind of a, a day of rest for the tennis world, where we... For once, there's there's no matches going on anywhere in the world. Um, do you think this is a good thing to have some tennis going on, or do you prefer the break? I've often been snarky about it before, and I think it's especially notable that there are people who can kind of schedule a, a trip around getting in that Sunday day of play before leaving town, do a weekend in Paris, get, get, get some of the main draw before leaving, and yet often... The, it's the weakest of the first three days in terms of quality of matchup. So it's it's not my favorite thing by any means. But on the other hand, it does give them another weekend day. The, the tournaments the week before with weaker draws seem okay to finish by Saturday. Uh, and it, it's it's good in terms of it's easier for fans to attend on a weekend. It's easier for people to watch on TV around the world at strange hours on a weekend. So I'm, I'm coming around to it. It, it does... It is one of those reminders, much like when the U.S. Open, either deliberately or not, went went on through Monday, of just what a dominant place the slams hold in the sport. That they can throw their weight around and, and carry on for an extra week, extra go go into a third week, because they are where by far the most interest and the most money and the most points are in the sport. So I, I, I don't love the slam dominated nature of the sport, but given that that's what it is. I think it, it makes a good deal of sense, although I, I'm glad that the other tournaments, the other three slams, have not followed that lead. Well, I think one positive development is that there is a pretty good slate of play today. Uh, obviously, we had Kerber on court. There's plenty of other interesting matches. You know, I, it, I might be totally wrong about this. I'm sure someone will correct me if I am. That the, the first year or two that Roland Garros did this, they didn't put as many matches on court the first day. It was sort of like a, a gesture at having something, like a, a few middling matches with probably with a couple French players uh, on the show courts. And today there are 24 matches, which isn't, isn't even quite uh, one-third of the first round, but it's close, and it's enough that if you do buy a ticket, you can get the Grand Slam early round experience. You can dip into a show court where you have tickets, but go find something more interesting, watch some men's tennis, watch some women's tennis watch a, a promising youngster. Uh, so 
that's a step in the right direction to me. I, w- I would hate to see a situation that would feel more cynical where there might just be six or eight matches where it, it, it really would just feel like the tournament is, is selling more tickets just because they can or claiming the day on the calendar, like you say, just because they have the power to do that. Um, but if they are really going to sp- spread things out and, and give fans a good experience, then, hey, I'm all for it. Yeah, and speaking of a good slate, we should give a nod to Timmy Bazinski, who I think a lot of people have forgotten after a really good summer a couple of years ago, but she's already through. And, and one of the advantages of the Sunday start is it gives for some players an extra day where our saying something good about their result today will still be relevant before they potentially lose in the next round. But, yeah, you're right. There, there are some big names. Kerber is still a big name and, and a top seed, even if she hasn't shown any of that play so far this year. And Kuznetsova is a real contender, is on court now. So I, I, I remember those those early dreadful Sunday slates. I shouldn't say dreadful because even a weak slate of first-rounders at a slam is is a pretty great set of matches. But a thin schedule, a lot of courts not even being used, we, we don't have that anymore. I think that will dilute Monday and Tuesday a little, but uh, I think it's it's okay as long as there's so much in the first round. There's such a, a richness of, of matches that you can probably afford to spread it around over three days. And sometimes I feel like the first two days of a slam, it's impossible to keep up with all the matches I want to keep an eye on. So so for the for the diehards, maybe it helps to spread it out. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, so before we wrap things up for this week, let let's do some lightning round predictions um carl who, who are you picking for your men's roland garros title list the little known spaniard rafael nadal how about you ah shocker i'm afraid i have to to agree with you there uh on the women's side who is your pick <sighs> oh man <laughs> obviously i have to and 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 know what i'm going to say but it, it's it's a lot more fun to pick someone you think has a better than their forecast 49% chance than a player who you think probably has like a 10 or 20% chance. But I'm going to go with Svitolina, first in the race, and the the healthiest of the informed players. Okay, so you're going with Svitolina. I'm really torn on this one because I did I don't really think Halep's going to win. I would I would easily bet the field against Halep, or I would I would bet against those six to one odds because I, I I'm always skeptical of Halep with a nagging injury. But I think I'm going to have to pick her anyway because even even with the injury, my numbers have her at something like um, close to twenty five percent, maybe closer to twenty to win the tournament, but no one else above ten. So if you make that adjustment with the injury, I still have to go Halep. So one more, Carl. If we have a surprise semifinalist, someone, let's say someone outside the top, the top eight, uh, who's who's your potential surprise semifinalist on the men's side? Oh, just out of loyalty, I'll say go fan. Although probably Zverev is a smarter pick. Yeah, Zverev would be the the, the easy pick, but you're going with go fan. Um, I'm going to go Kyrgios. I think somehow he's he, he's going to put things back together just in time for the slam. We've seen him, him do it before, uh, put together some magic for a slam, even when when we think he's he's suffering. So I'll go Kyrgios. On the women's side, who's your dark horse outside the top eight semifinalist? It's not much of a dark horse, but I've been saying her name all clay season, Kristina Mladenovic. All right. That's a, a, a good call. I'm going to go with Tafarova just because I want to. I'm not sure if I really think so, but why not? I'd love to see Lucy Tafarova in the semifinals, and she's in the perfect spot in the draw to do it. So, Carl, before we sign off for this week, anything else you want to talk about for Roland Garros? Just always fun to be back at a slam, especially when you have that four-month break after the Australian Open, which which I have a few thoughts about that calendar, but I'll let people read that on the, the fine tennis website, tennisabstract.com. Yes, if you're Googling that for Carl's guest piece, it's called Cool Down Tennis and definitely worth a read. Um, So enjoy the tennis this week, everybody. Carl, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. And we hope you'll join us next week for the Decima, episode 10. And thanks for listening.